This is Market Pathways, your premium guide to global medical device regulation, reimbursement, and policy. Become a part of the global medtech community at mystrategist.com. So let's get into uh, a discussion of, of, of MDR. And I mm-hmm. thought the best place to start would be to give our listeners an understanding of both the process, and I emphasize process because, again, we have listeners both in Europe who are Mm -hmm. familiar with the process and how things work, and also many in the U.S. who are not familiar with how the European um, legislative procedure, I'm talking broadly, works. So Mm -hmm. as we go through this, I I may ask you, you know, at a couple of points to just explain, you know, the process and where where we go from here. But there was, I think, kind of a misunderstanding um, in December, uh, December 9th, after the EPSCO meeting, the meeting of the European health Mm -hmm. ministers, um, a, a lot of people kind of assumed that there was a proposal that came. I don't know if yeah. you had the same impression that I did, but I, I heard a lot. I, of I, well, I saw a lot of uh, consultants uh, legal explaining what had happened, which is, right. of course, always a bad idea if you don't have legal training. I mean, I'm not a nuclear physicist, so I try to refrain from statements in uh, uh, in that field as much as possible. But apparently, consultants are uh, well. They 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 think they know everything about everything. So indeed, there were quite a number of people that were immediately uh, say uh, posting things on LinkedIn like we have an official proposal. No. Now, so why did they? Might they have thought that? Because uh, what happened is that <clears throat> twice a year, the uh, European Union uh, has uh, what is called the EPSCO meeting. Why is it twice a year? Because we have two presidencies in the European Union a year. So we have a relating presidency. So every uh, next half year, another member state gets a presidency. And what they do is they organize all the council meetings in which the uh, representatives of the member states' governments meet and tackle the big issues. So every presidency has its EPCO, EPSCO meeting. And in the Uh, First presidency uh, EPSCO meeting in 2022, the conclusion was, oh, this is uh, this uh, this stuff is going uh, sideways. Uh, We are going to mandate the uh, the European Commission to come up with a legislative solution for the problem of the enormous pile of uh, certificates that's piling up at the end of the uh, grace period uh, towards uh, May 2024, which notified bodies will not be able to process in time. And, and a, me, I'm just interrupt you occasionally, Eric, mm-hmm. just to make, uh, make a point. Well, again, for readers who may not be as familiar, is it fair to refer to those as legacy devices and there's devices that... Yeah, yeah, these these, these, are, these are exactly the legacy devices. So legacy devices are basically all devices that have a valid active implantable medical devices directive or medical devices directive uh, CE certificate that is valid past the date of application of the uh, MDR, so valid past... 26 May 2021, and which expires somewhere between 
26 May 2021 and 26 May 2024. Those are officially the legacy devices. And again, and the 2024 these... date is simply because MDR provided, whether you want to call it an extension or whatever period. Um, that yeah, in, in, in a way, because, uh, because, of course, we already had a transitional period in the MDR, eh? because we had a transitional period from uh, 26 May 2017 to 26 uh, uh, May 2020 originally. That was moved in 2020 to uh, 26 May 2021. And then on top was this additional, what they called grace period, during which, uh, which was basically already, uh, uh, you could say, a compensation mechanism for uh, companies that could not get their device into the MDR during the first transitional period, because during the first transitional period, there were basically almost no notified bodies uh, that were re-notified under the NDR. So because they could sort of see that coming when they fixed the text for the uh, for the NDR, they already put this additional safety valve period, the grace period on top. And now what they are looking at uh, with the new proposal is to uh, radically extend this grace period. But before we had this uh, proposal, we came to the, the second EBSCO meeting uh, where the commission was scheduled to reveal its uh, proposal. And when that was the meeting and on December 9th. Exactly. Yeah. And then what happened was that Commissioner Kariakides um, held a speech saying, we are definitely planning a, uh, a proposal, but it's just not ready yet. But it will look very much like the proposal that we have generally described in a document uh, um, with no pre preparation notes for the EBSCO meeting, uh, which contains yeah, broad outlines of what the proposal would look like. And of this document, so this, uh, this prep note, uh, a lot of people thought, oh, this is the official proposal, which was completely wrong because it was so vaguely uh, formulated that you couldn't really call it a proposal. So then 9 December came and went, subsequent confusion. Uh, uh, I spent a lot of time uh, playing whack-a-mole with people okay. that were saying uh, it's an official proposal. And I would say, no, it's not an official proposal. You have to wait. And then on 6 January, because... Uh, the commissioner promised that it would come early January. On 6 January, we had the, uh, finally, we had the, uh, the, uh, the official proposal, um, which then, uh, was put up for stakeholder consultation from 11 to 18 January. Originally, the commission made a bit of a silly mistake because they, uh, they had put in the normal uh, standard uh, consultation period um, duration, uh, which extended the consultation well into March. People were like, huh, what's happening? Because uh, the proposal uh, went into the, well, the proposal was made. So that means it goes into the, um, into uh, the uh, legislative uh, uh, procedure. Yeah, explain, but, the, explain the process because there are a lot of people who don't understand mm -hmm. that there are actually three bodies when you look at the commission, the parliament, the council that have to weigh in on this proposal. So w walk people through how that process works. 
Yeah, so so how it works is that uh, uh, also in Europe we have separation of powers, which is uh, fantastic. So that means that there are that we have uh, we have a parliament, and we have an executive branch, just like uh, they have uh, in most uh, civilized uh, democracies. And what happens is that um, the uh, the bureaucracy. Um, is uh, the commission, and the commission has the right of initiative uh, for uh, legislative proposals. That's a bit weird because that is not how it works in most uh, democracy. Because also in most of the democracies, the parliament has the right of initiative for new legislation. Now in Europe, it's the commission, uh, and that means that the commission makes a proposal. Then normally the default legislative procedure starts, which is called the co-decision procedure, which means that both the the council and the parliament get to uh, uh, say something about the legislative uh, legislative procedure. Uh, So they have to basically agree on the legislative proposal. They can make amendments and they do that in a number of what we call readings. So we have a first reading and a second reading, basically. And if um, and basically in the process, uh, at some point, you need to arrive at a point where um, the um, the uh, uh, the council and the parliament say, yes, OK, we agree about this proposal and each other's amendments. And then the uh, proposal gets adopted. In this case, we are looking at the uh, uh, also at an accelerated version of the co-decision procedure, which means that they are going to plan things in a lot faster. They are going to decide on things a lot faster than usual because uh, normally these procedures can take uh, can take a year easily. But for example, uh, the accelerated procedure can be really really fast. The uh, proposal uh, in uh, 2020, for example, to amend the uh, the MDR to move the date of application a, a year, that proposal went through in less than a month. So in this case, we uh, we have a proposal that is uh, uh, slightly more uh, uh, complicated. But uh, on the other hand, also there the urgency is uh, very much felt. So. Uh, um, now, let me ask you, they that, when that went through, at, subsequent to that, there were some uh, comments that if there was another uh, period discussed, that maybe members would want to take a little more time. And some people thought that went through uh, too quickly. So the one thing I just mm-hmm. want to have you explain is also it is possible at each step of this process for people to offer amendments and uh, you know change these these uh, proposals, isn't that right? Yes, that is uh, that is true. Um, the uh, uh, <clears throat> the procedure allows for uh, both the, com- the the council and the parliament to make amendments. But the opportunities for that are very limited in the accelerated procedure because otherwise the accelerated procedure would be uh, deaccelerated, <laughs> which we which we don't like. So uh, for that reason, uh, but it is true that uh, during a meeting uh, in the Europe, uh, a hearing in the European Parliament, uh, 
just before the EBSCO meeting on 9 December last year, the commissioner was called to the parliament uh, because a couple of the parliamentarians were really worried about how things were going with the MDR. And a few of them actually said, uh, oh, yeah, and by the way, don't think that you are going to uh, whisk this proposal past us like you did in uh, 2020, because this time we really want to uh, have the opportunity to take a good look at it. So it's not excluded that uh, the, pro the, the proposal is going to be amended somewhat also because I think that... Um, but that's my that's that's my personal opinion, but also an opinion that I've heard from various other experts, is that the proposal as it was currently made is quite open-ended on some points, contains some new concepts that are not defined. So on the one hand, it is yeah, it's it's uh, let's say an, an attempt to solve the problem, but on the other hand, it also creates new. Uh, complexities that I think could be avoided by just paying a bit more attention to uh, certain uh, things. So it might be that they will do some uh, tinkering on the uh, on the proposal as well in the legislative process, but we'll, we'll need to see. I mean, currently you can track these uh, proposals on the, uh, uh, on the European Union's uh, Eurolex uh, site uh, under the um, uh, in their preparatory documents gives you a very nice overview of the uh, of the steps that are taken and when what is going to happen. You can also look at the uh, legislative observatory uh, site of the European Parliament, where you can check how it, uh, the proposal is doing in the European Parliament, who are the responsible rapporteurs for the proposal, so you know who you, you need to lobby and so on. But uh, yeah, all of that is, uh, it is, uh, yeah. Under underway, so to speak, and we'll need to see how this uh, how this all plays out. Hey everyone, I'm Joey Brenneman from Offscript Health, and we are excited to introduce you to Offscript Health's latest podcast series called Before We Die the world's best podcast about the med tech industry. So download and subscribe to Before We Die, wherever you get your podcasts. You'll get full episodes every Tuesday and on Thursdays. You'll get our Lab Before Slab mini episodes where Sandy, John, and Craig geek out about the latest happenings in the med tech world. Who would have thought that medical innovation could be so riveting? Hey, have you heard of Market Pathways? Market Pathways provides the most in-depth analysis you'll find of the changes happening in medical device regulation and reimbursement every day. They address the complexity in regulatory affairs and beyond by helping you digest and contextualize technical topics like Medicare and MDR. Visit mystrategist.com slash trial today to start your free five-day trial to Market Pathways. Again, that's mystrategist.com slash trial for five days of online access. Your support is valuable and makes us better. Please remember to leave a review and rate Market Pathways on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to listen. So let's get into some specifics, Eric. Now that uh, unlike after the December 9th meeting when people were talking about a, a proposal that really didn't exist, now we actually have a proposal. So let's let's talk about some of the 
the key points. Um, and let me throw out a couple of general points that um, I was hearing people asking about and tell me, you know, what the proposals uh, do regarding these issues. Of course, I think top of mind for a lot of people was the question of will the proposal revive MDD? And again, MDD, I don't want to get too deep into acronyms here. The Medical Device Directive was the regulation that preceded um, MDR. But the question of whether the proposal would revive MDD certificates that had already expired and under mm -hmm. kind of what circumstances, that was something that I, I heard a lot about. The question that we you know we talked about the 2024 transition period. Uh, some people have asked, will the proposal extend that grace period? Um, and also, uh, you know, the, the question of, and I'll let you explain this um, in, in greater detail, what's referred to as the Article 97 bridging solution um, mm -hmm. set out in the MDCG documents. And we can get into, again, I, I, I don't want to overwhelm people with acronyms, um, but but those were a couple that were top of mind from what I've heard. Um, mm -hmm. If you could address, what does the proposal say about those? And, and if there are other key provisions that you want to talk about? Okay. Yeah. Let's let's first extend uh, talk about these uh, three because, of course, people are <clears throat> very uh, very uh, interested in that. So revival of certificates. Yes, that is a thing. Uh, but the certificate needs to have uh, uh, it needs to have been a legacy device certificate. So if you had a certificate for uh, a, a medical device under the old directives that's expired before the uh, date of application of the MDR, so before uh, 26 May 2021, then too bad, so sad, no revival of certificate for you. But if you had a certificate that expired between uh, uh, after the date of application, then uh, it might, uh, uh, it might uh, revive, but the problem is that this is the way they set up the proposal. It's a very conditional proposal because uh, the proposal says, um, so if you have a certificate for a legacy device that was uh, valid on 26 May 2021, eh? so legacy device definition, and it has not been withdrawn, so it can't have been invalid because of withdrawal, but needs to have expired because the end date on the certificate passed, then, um, then the device may actually uh, relive and be valid until either 31 December 2027 or 31 December 2028 for uh, uh, depending on the risk class of the device. So it's 2027 for class three devices and for class two implantable devices. And 31 December 2028 for class 2D devices, uh, 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 class 2A devices, and this is really important, class one devices. Uh, um, that uh, that need a notified body. So these are the sterile conditions, measuring functions, uh, 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 
devices, but also, uh, and I, I've seen that this is point that's often misunderstood. These are MDR classification terms. So classification under the MDR is slightly different from classification under the uh, under the MDD. So if you, for example, have a class one software device that is class 2A under the MDR, which basically is almost a hundred percent chance if you uh, if you had such a device, there was the option that you could uh, uh, could reissue your declaration of conformity just before the date of application and then write out the whole uh, grace period on your declaration of conformity. And then uh, before the end of the grace period, you needed to have a, a MDR class 2A. But in this case, you would be a class 2A device. So uh, you could uh, qualify for the 2028 uh, uh, timeframe. But now here's the kicker. On the condition that before the expiry of the certificate, uh, um, uh, the um, so again, uh, you are a legacy device. You have a certificate, mm -hmm. um, but before the certificate had expired, as a condition, you had needed to be already on board with a notified body. So if you had been sitting on your hands, thinking, oh, like, which I've been warning people for for years by now. And thinking like, oh, I have time, I have time, 24, 24 is far away, I have time. And you don't have, uh, you don't have a, uh, an agreement with the notified body by the time that this proposal uh, enters into force, then there is no automatic revival of your certificate. And your certificate remains as invalid as it ever was. So that's, that's, that's a bit of a problem, but it may also relive if you had an Article 59 or an Article 97 exemption. These are, uh, um, and that you do not need, by the way, at the uh, date of expiry of the certificate, strangely enough. But anyway, so what you could still do is see if you could get an Article 59 uh, derogation or an Article 97 application, which we will talk about uh, later. Um, mm -hmm. And then you could also, let's say, uh, pull vault yourself into the uh, into the relief category. Let me ask you one point, because one of the criticisms that I'm hearing is that this kind of uh, the, allowing these extensions based on risk, so risk-based mm -hmm. extensions, which is kind of a model, and we're going to talk later about IVDR, but it kind of tracks a little bit about the the. Uh, the extension with uh, IVDR, but is an opportunity for companies to, um, let's say, kick the can down the road a little bit, if you know the expression that I'm using there? Uh, well, I, yes, yeah, yeah, I've, I've often used it myself, and okay, I, would say, I would say yes and no. Is that a valid criticism? Uh, I would say yes and no. Okay. Because uh, because what the EU at least was planning to do with this proposal is not reward manufacturers that have been kicking the can down the road. So what are they doing? They're basically, the proposal has been set up in a way that if you want to qualify for the, uh, uh, for um, so we were just talking about 
under the circumstances under which your certificate may relive, right? Now we are going to talk about the circumstances under which your certificate may be valid longer. So past 2024. And these conditions are really strict and they have a very strict kicking the can down the road hurdle in it. So let's go back to the class one, the software device manufacturer who will have a class 2A device uh, under the MDR. That software manufacturer just, uh, I don't know, he reads or she reads uh, an article written by a consultant uh, on the internet that says extension uh, until 2028 for uh, class 1 devices under the MDD. And that person thinks like, ah, fantastic. I don't have to do anything until 2028 end of 2028 even. Well, this is not the case um, because what does this, uh, what do you need to do in order to qualify for either the 2027 period, depending on risk or the 2028 period, depending on your risk class, you must have put in place a fully compliant medical devices regulation quality system by 26 May 2024. So this is already a major step eh? because this is this this means more than just being uh, ISO 13485 uh, certified because there's a lot extra stuff in the MDR. So you need to have done that by 26 May 2024 next year. By the way, so it's uh, closer than you think. Mm -hmm. And before 26 May 2024, you need to have lodged an application for conformity assessment under the MDR with a notified body. And you need to have signed a formal agreement with the notified body for this uh, for uh, for this purpose. So that means that this manufacturer that thinks that he has a backstop date at in, in end of 2028 actually needs to be fully compliant with the MDR already next year, because otherwise, you don't meet the requirement of having a fully qualified, a fully compliant MDR quality system, and you cannot make a conformity assessment application at the notified body because that means handing in your quality system documentation and handing in your technical documentation, which both need to be completely up to standards, need to contain all the clinical data. So basically, yeah, these people, these people have, they have to be ready by the MDR next year in order to get four and a half years extra to complete the conformity assessment by the notified body. And this, I cannot stress enough, uh, is how people should look at the extension period. Not at, I can sit on my hands. Uh, so not as I, manufacturer, can sit on my hands, but the notified body that I have to have an application in the door with by uh, uh, May 2024, that notified body, they get basically until 31 uh, December uh, 2027 or 2028 time to finish my conformity assessment application, which starts 26 May 2024 at the very latest. So basically, this long period uh, passed between 2024 and 2027 or 2028 gives notified bodies the opportunity to do load balancing. Uh, 
but it does not give manufacturers the opportunity to sit on their hands because everybody needs to be in the door at a notified body and have a fully compliant quality system by end of May next year. So there's a lot of work to do. No time to sit on your hands. Your practice embraces both you know, large strategics and, and uh, small and medium-sized mm -hmm. uh, companies. What has your experience been? Are, are companies being diligent about these, uh, these deadlines, or do you have to prod them to and remind them that they need to kind of uh, pick up the pace and, and, and move ahead? Well, uh, again, it varies. I mean, of course, I don't have to do anything because basically as external lawyer, uh, I mean, the more of a mess people make, the more money I earn in the end. Which, but that's, of course, uh, a perverse incentive uh, uh, in a way. But no, but I've been very active explaining also on my uh, on my blog for years and years that people should not wait with this. Eh? I mean, it's like Christmas shopping. Every idiot understands that Christmas shopping, uh, you want to buy a Christmas turkey, don't do it on the last possible day. Mm. Or go Christmas, Christmas present shopping, don't do it on the last day because... Yeah, everything is gone and it will still be crowded. So people understand that logic. But what you often don't see in companies is that they don't that they don't understand the logic of waiting with NDR application until the very last day. Because often, and what I usually see within companies is that there is a kind of, let's say, um, weird uh, dynamic going on where the management says, oh, this is expensive. This is going to take lots of resources until when do we have? What's the last maximum date? Okay, so then we wait until the very last possible date. Not every company does this, but a lot of companies have this as a knee-jerk reaction. Then you have the nice, kind nerds in regulatory that say, no, management, don't wait this long. It will be stupid. Uh, you will risk things. We need more resources to do this. We can't do this as a hobby project on Sunday afternoon uh, next to our own job. This is serious. And even after the applications have gone in, we still need to do a lot of extra work uh, uh, forever. So please resource us, resource us uh, uh, properly. And in this dynamic, you often see companies get caught up. And it can happen in big companies that you have a business unit caught up in this. Or I see it in smaller and medium-sized companies where just the whole company gets caught up on this uh, when they don't have uh, special, uh, separate business units. But uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been helping some of the, uh, I think about three, four of the world's biggest medical devices companies with their MDR transition program. And I've been, let's say, a sort of embedded uh, person in their process. And yeah, with some companies that have relatively independently operating business units, you could really see quite different, a lot of uh, divergence between MDR strategies and some would, uh, yeah, go, uh, some would be more conservative and others would be, uh, would be kicking the can down the road a bit more. And you also see small and medium sized companies that just have absolutely no clue uh, uh, and uh, completely miss the point. 
that happens a lot less in bigger companies. Uh, but um, yeah, that's that's basically what the landscape looks like. And uh, uh, what I've also seen that's also interesting is uh, I've seen a lot of uh, medium-sized companies being put up for sale uh, that were sold to uh, private equity companies that had absolutely no clue about this whole transitional regime going on. And you would see uh, you would see management of these small and medium-sized companies go like, yes, sold the company just before this whole stupid NDR project needed to happen. And uh, hey, good luck, uh, you naive private equity uh, fund. Uh, good luck with, uh, well, selling off the assets when this whole thing uh, tanks because we have absolutely zero of a plan for medical devices regulation transition. Mm -hmm. That also happened quite a lot. Um, and I think it even happened more under the IVD regulation, so the sister regulation of the medical devices regulation, because I saw investors there that even had less of a clue of what was going on uh, there. So investors beware, do a good due diligence and have it done by an expert because a lot of mistakes are made uh, 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 by uh, uh, targets that you want to buy. So you mentioned M&A. Let me ask you, a kind of go down a little side road here and uh, one of the issues that came up with MDR uh, was a concern that there would be uh, an increasing amount of, let's just call it portfolio rationalization, particularly on the mm -hmm. part of large companies who would yep. make the decision that it's not worth it for them to continue certain product lines, which had, let's say, limited uh, customer bases. It wasn't mm -hmm. worth the additional uh, resources and clinical data that they'd have to compile under MDR. So it, it made sense for them to just um, sell those uh, those product lines. Um, mm -hmm. A, ha have you seen that? Was that realistic? And has that been tempered somewhat? by the proposal extending these deadlines? In other words, does that make these large companies think twice before they divest certain product lines? Um, yes, first question. Yes, I've seen, uh, especially some of my big clients, massively shed uh, um, products that, that were not sufficiently profitable to go into the MDR. Uh, especially when the MDR came out in 2017, you saw companies uh, uh, like J&J, &J, for example, embark on massive rationalization exercises uh, that, that really uh, uh, yeah, uh, caused a lot of uh, rationalization. So yes, that is definitely a thing. Um, did the proposal now do anything for that? No, because everybody that was going to rationalize for the MDR has done it by now. If you still need to start doing this, by if you still need to start by now to check if it's a good idea or not, then I think you have bigger problems than, uh, <laughs> yeah. So let me throw another acronym into the mix for those who are not familiar with the group MDCG. I'm going to let you explain MDCG, but I want to have that lead into, um, they've been very active. They issued um, a group of 19 proposals, but specifically, um, I wanted to talk about what's been referred to as the bridging measure. And that's uh, yeah, yeah. one of those areas that people have been concerned about. Um, 
and how this new proposal will relate to uh, what uh, people refer to as the Article 97 MDR bridging measure that was set out by MDCG. Um, and I think it's important because Article 97 um, MDR is really only needed where the law doesn't provide for a solution allowing the manufacturer to be compliant for the device mm -hmm. concern. So um, explain to people, first of all, what MDCG is and what role they play. And then we let's talk about the, the, the bridging measure. Sure. Yeah. So the MDCG is, uh, is, is, is a body uh, that is defined in the MDR, Article 105, actually. And it's basically, it's part of the governance landscape uh, uh, of the operating system of the MDR, so to say. So the, MD, uh, the MDCG, the Medical Devices Coordination Group, it's called, is, uh, uh, is a body composed of experts delegated by the member states, by the governments of the member states. So that means that each each uh, union member state gets uh, uh, gets a seat in the uh, in the MDCG, and uh, the uh, and and the MDCG has uh, a number of governance tasks. One of which is to provide guidance, and uh, and also uh, other things, common uh, common specifications, uh, and so on, but. Guidance production is one of their uh, one of their uh, tasks. Uh, it's presided by the European Commission, but the European Commission doesn't have a vote in the process, which is also uh, interesting. But what happens is that the uh, what happened with the MDR is that the MDR is basically it's a framework uh, legislation. So when it came out in uh, in two thousand seventeen. Yeah, a lot was still unclear, was open and so on. So they needed to um, uh, produce a lot of guidance documents, uh, delegated acts, implementing acts to basically make the uh, MDR operational. And this is a large part of what the MDCG does. Um, they, uh, they make guidance documents and then uh, pretend that these guidance documents are actually law. Uh, and make notified bodies apply them like they are a law. Uh, well, this is a bit of an oversimplification, but uh, it happens that actually notified bodies, for example, are instructed to do this. This is getting a bit less. I've myself been very militant against uh, uh, yeah, this process of pseudo-lawmaking, uh, basically. And what you see is if you look on the uh, website of the, uh, uh, of the MDCG, where it lists its uh, guidance, for example, you can see that since um, since the uh, uh, MDR came into force, well, they've they've yeah produced an impressive amount of guidance documents, more than there ever were under the MDD and the AIMDD during the uh, uh, well uh, almost uh, no yeah almost thirty years that these uh, directives were in place. So that also shows that the MDR needed a lot of additional operationalization. So now back to your uh, 19 points. So um, the MDCG is also concerned with, uh, uh, with uh, as the law says, it is um, 
supposed to contribute to the assessment of conformity assessment bodies and notified bodies and to also advise the commission uh, on matters regarding notified bodies because the way it works with notified bodies is that member states notify notified bodies so a member state gets to basically so that's what it, what it was like traditionally gets to decide okay this notified body is okay i'm going to write a letter to brussels saying this notified body uh, uh, is considered by me to be competent to be notified body in the meaning of this regulation or this directive now under the NDD and the AIMDD, this led to a lot of quality differences between notified bodies. So already under the MDD, there was a, a program, uh, the joint assessment uh, program, under which member states and the commission together would do joint assessments of notified body to basically do informal harmonization of uh, uh, quality. Now under the MDR, which I think was a bit of a mistake, but uh, we only found out about that afterwards. Every notified body that was already notified needed to re-notify because, uh, because it was considered on a political level. You can't trust notified bodies as they are, so they all need to go through the laundry again, reapply. But this process took forever uh, and still it's not finished, which caused the capacity problem. Now, to, I mean, in just order so to people, fix, Just so people know, I mean, at the peak, and correct me if my memory is off. I think there are around 85 notified yes. bodies roughly under the, the MDD. Now, again, nobody expects there ever, I think it's fair to say, to be that many notified bodies. And there were problems with some of those notified bodies. Mm -hmm. But the, the reality is that I think we're up to 37 if if I... If I counted correctly, I may be off by one or two. But yeah, there was uh, there was one uh, announced uh, today. I think again okay. uh, under the NDR, maybe thirty-eight or thirty-seven. Maybe thirty-eight. No, I've stopped counting. But I also think that the discussion about how many notified bodies is not that relevant. I would rather think it's more relevant. What is the capacity of the notified bodies that have been notified? Right. That's right. Uh, because because when we uh, when when the NDR uh, became applicable, I think we had. 50 or now when the notified bodies could start to re-notify under the MDR I think we had of these more than 80 notified bodies there were already only 55 left that's something people often forget right and yeah basically I mean the most of the capacity available is already notified so uh, that is not uh, so much the problem every other one that joins now they are usually niche notified bodies or notified bodies that are very late to the game and basically are not going to make a difference in uh, certification capacity. Right. I mean, put it di put differently, it really becomes a question of notified body resources rather than yes. really the number of notified bodies that... Yeah, and if you look at the big notified bodies like Tufsuit and BSI, for example, they, they have almost doubled in uh, size of uh, NDR uh, personnel. So, I mean, that is really, those are significant increases in capacity. But if you have like a niche notified body from Bulgaria that has gone from uh, two persons to five persons or something, that's not going to make uh, the difference. So let's talk so, about, um, we're gonna, there are a couple of things, and I want to get into the MDCG recommendations regarding mm -hmm. notified bodies, but I, I want to get back to the bridging measure. Um, yeah. And again, people refer to it differently. Um, 
some you had alluded to the notion of derogation um yep. previously uh in some countries it's referred to as formal non-compliance i think that may be germany or or, or others so it maybe goes up under a different name uh but but talk a little bit about um what the proposal uh, how does it address that and how uh companies should think about that process Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what we already had in the MDR were basically two exemptions to devices being CE marked. Because the problem, of course, is if your notified body doesn't have capacity and your certificate expires, you are in a situation of not being CE marked. So we had two provisions in the MDR that could basically uh, uh, help you out then. The derogation under Article 59, which is only available for uh, uh, basically um, measures that are crucial to uh, to care in a specific uh, member state and for which there is no uh, other equivalent on the European market. And is, Eric, is it also fair to say that derogation may be a one-shot deal in that in other words, if company A applies for it it may be difficult for a competitor yes because because then because then you can't say that uh, that there there is an equivalent right so uh, or you can't say there's no equivalent uh, i mean so as soon as you have equivalents in a market then yeah then it already article 959 becomes a problem so what you also have is Article 97, which basically says if you have a device that uh, poses absolutely no problem in terms of risk and safety, but there is formal non-compliance for one or the other reasons. So basically, uh, yeah, paperwork is not okay because you cannot make the paperwork okay because the uh, because the, the the notified body that is supposed to help you make the paperwork okay is just not available. Under those circumstances, member states can grant you a temporary exemption. And um, uh, so then to get to the bridging measure, um, when this proposal to extend the MDR was not on the table, uh, the MDCG was thinking about, dang, how are we going to deal with all these expiring certificates uh, if the MDR is not changed? So they wrote a position uh, paper, or I would say actually a series of position papers in which they laid out, uh, look, we are going to take measures to uh, basically uh, give the notified bodies more leeway to be efficient. And on the other hand, we are also going to explain how manufacturers may rely on Article 97 in case they are in the door at a notified body. But for some reason or the other, the notified body does not uh, manage to finish the conformity assessment uh, procedure before the uh, certificate expires. In that case, it would be really sad if you can't be on the market anymore just because of this situation. And then what we will do is we will give you an Article 97 exemption, typically for a year. If you can prove that your device is beyond reproach, has a spotless vigilance record, we will not get in trouble with it as a member state and so on. And in that case, we will give you an extra year of a validity during which your notified body can finish the uh, uh, the uh, conformity assessment procedure. That is what they issued in September last year, September 22, with the uh, MDCG uh, 2022-14. Uh, 
uh, a position paper. But this is sort of being passed on the right now by the uh, extension proposal. Because if there's an extension of the validity of your certificate, you don't have an invalid certificate. If you don't have an invalid certificate, you don't have formal non-compliance. So you don't need Article 97. So they originally called it as a bridging measure because it was yeah, basically the only bridge to bridge from a situation of the uh, legacy device to the MDR and to bridge basically the non-compliance gap if your certificate would expire ahead of time. But now the bridge will be built and it will be a huge bridge uh, um, by, the, uh, by the extension proposal. And yeah, basically reliance on Article 97 will be rare, I think, which is good because uh, persons like me completely didn't uh, trust the competent authorities of the member states in the EU to sufficient capacity to deal with a lot of Article 97 applications. So that's why also this proposal uh, is, a, uh, is a good thing. Let me address a couple of general points um, that people have expressed concerns about at the MDR um, and see if uh, you look at the proposal as being helpful at all. For example, you know, one of the big issues uh, that companies face is the notion of what constitutes a significant change in a in a device wow. and triggering the regulation. Um, let me throw a couple others out. The concern about the orphan device, the lack of an orphan, uh, a clear orphan mm -hmm. device um, provision, and then also uh, the role of panels, um, because I think it often gets confused. Um, it often gets compared to the role of panels with the FDA in the U.S., and and it's it's actually uh, quite different. So um, are those still areas that are open for discussion and need for clarification, or have they been uh, clarified at all under this new proposal? Uh, no, because the proposal doesn't change anything in the three uh, uh, points that you mentioned, because so, uh, uh, and again, but this, this is important, legacy devices cannot be subject to a significant change, because then you lose the validity of your certificate. So. Even if you think like, ah, goodness, I am in the uh, um, I am in the grace period until 2028 with my software, for example. Very nice, but you cannot do you cannot make any significant changes to the legacy device until 2028. So uh, no extension of functionality, for example, which is, yeah, that's actually not that good. Basically, the design and the intended purpose of the device are frozen for the whole uh, period that you are a legacy device. So that's actually not that, uh, not that nice. Um, and then orphan devices. Yeah, this was something that a lot of people hoped that might have been addressed in the proposal, but it's not. Um, and uh, yeah, in Europe, we just don't have any specific uh, uh, specific procedures for orphan devices. We also don't have uh, procedures for breakthrough devices, uh, where I think the FDA really did uh, did a very good job on this. 
and I think more generally, you can say that sort of the regulatory competition pendulum has uh, swung the other way. Eh? Because, I mean, there was a time that, uh, that everybody went Europe first because the FDA was slow. They required clinical trials for everything. And so you went to Europe, then you used the Europe's as guinea pigs, and then you had a lot of clinical data, and then you went back to the, uh, uh, back to the US. Not anymore, because uh, basically the European process has become so yeah complex and uh, uh, and also plagued by uh, by delays in clarity capacity restrictions that it's just not reliable at the moment and that means that i see a lot of european companies now actually think like okay we go uh, we go uh, us first because the fda are nice competent people and they have a breakthrough devices program that gets us to the market very quickly the us market is also very attractive because it's just as big as the european one so why wait Let's go there first. Americans be guinea pigs, and then we will do our uh, uh, homework in uh, in Europe. So that's. I mean, that's to that definitely... point, I've even heard CEOs say that after the U.S., they're going to go to Asia, China, hmm. and Japan has actually uh, started to show up on the radar screens before we exactly. go to Europe. Yeah. Yeah, and there's there's even uh, countries in Europe like uh, Switzerland that are now saying, uh, oh, by the way, we are not going to uh, rely on CE marking anymore uh, uh, to mutually recognize devices on our market because a small country like Switzerland has to, uh, well, basically partner with a regulatory system. And they used to be completely tied into the CE system. But at the moment, they are actually considering uh, recognizing FDA-approved devices, which I think is sounds easier than it is for them because they are so deeply invested in uh, CE logic. But uh, yeah, we'll see. At least it was something that really shook up the community here. And I think uh, hopefully also gave a lot of uh, people in the European bureaucracy a bit more uh, sense of urgency uh, there. There's some talk that the UK may go in a similar direction. What about the role of panels, Eric? Because that's, I think, another point that uh, is, there's some confusion about that. And I think part of that relates to the difference between the role of panels under MDR mm. and the role of panels uh, with the FDA. Yeah, so we have expert panels for the MDR, uh, which uh, which are a, let's say, an extra layer of uh, evaluation of uh, clinical evidence for certain devices. Uh, and that expert panel system has been functioning for some time. So for certain uh, uh, certain devices, there is basically uh, a double check on uh, the clinical evaluation. So basically the clinical strategy for the device uh, by, an, uh, by a European expert, uh, uh, a European level expert panel, and they deliver a report. And then the notified body can either decide, okay, I'm going to follow this report or not. And if they don't follow the report, then member states can say, oh, then we prohibit the device. So usually the uh, uh, both the notified body and the manufacturer will say, yeah, better follow this report, even if we don't like it. There's there's quite some criticism from the regulatory community as well on how these expert panels function, because the uh, there's a lot of medical people on the expert panel, but uh, only expert panels, but not so many regulatory people. So you sometimes see them use reasoning and logic of which you think like, huh? This doesn't fit the system, people. Come on. What planet are you from? But anyway, so there's that. And then the most recent development in that regard 
is that um, also finally the scientific advice procedure for medical devices is now coming online because there's also an option in the NDR to go to an expert panel for scientific advice. And that is basically, that's analogous to what you can do with the FDA. So you can go to the FDA and say, this is what I'm planning. This is my clinical strategy. What do you think? And uh, is that sort of, is that hitting the mark or not? So that is now being, uh, that's also now uh, uh, becoming operational. Actually, for people that are interesting, uh, interested, the uh, uh, the EMA, the European Medicines Agency, administrates this whole process, which is another interesting development because European Medicines Agency administrating expert panels for medical devices. Where is this going? Right. Um, are we going uh, slowly moving towards a Euro FDA in the uh, European Medicines Agency? I mean, we might get a EMMA, so a European Medicines and Medical Devices uh, Agency. No, that would be an EMMDA, a Medical Devices Agency. One other area that has raised concerns um, from the EPSCO meeting uh, back in December to the proposal is how the Commission is treating the sell off provision. And that has yeah. raised concern amongst companies and distributors. Um, so uh, I'd like you to take a, a minute to just kind of talk about that issue, why it's so important, and what the proposal does. The proposal clarify does the proposal clarify the uh, the question. Uh, yes, well, yes and no, uh, because the uh, the because the sell-off period in the NDR was basically set up in a way that it was a grace period on top of the grace period, because what the because the the the, the NDR functioned in a way that it was said, okay, we want no more new legacy devices being placed on the market after 26 May 2024. But the legacy devices that have been placed on the market after 26 May 2024 uh, can still be sold off to uh, the final to the end users until 27 May 2025. So basically, you have a year to clear out your supply chain. That turned out to be uh, actually uh, quite short for most medical devices manufacturers uh, that have devices with a longer expiry date or slow supply chain. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, that was going to really contribute to uh, basically potential medical device shortages as well. Because, of course, uh, once you cannot uh, uh, further make devices available because the sell-off experience has expired, you can't sell them in the union anymore. So you have to sell them to Africa, to Asia, to the Middle East, maybe to the US, South America, but not in Europe. So then the commission decided, okay, we are also going to propose in this proposal that we are going to remove the sell-off period, which means that basically now there is no sell-off period anymore and you can sell off your legacy devices until eternity. So whatever you can stockpile before uh, uh, your certificate expires, if you are not going to go into the MDR, or before twenty, uh, before thirty-one December twenty twenty-seven or twenty-eight, you can sell off forever. 
So that means that potentially we might still have legacy devices still uh, trickling through the European supply chain by 2030, 2040, 2050, if they are like, I don't know, sur surgical instruments that have no expiry date because they need to be sterilized before use. So all of that is uh, possible. And the proposal did one other weird thing. It also removed the sell-off date for in vitro diagnostics under the in vitro diagnostics regulation. So it's also important to know for people in the in vitro diagnostics uh, industry. Great. Well, Eric, let me wrap up with one. I'm not going to ask you to look into your crystal ball because uh, we know that if you if you oh, could do why it. not? Here, look what I have. <laughs> but one area. It's a magic eight ball. I would gladly shake it for you. <laughs> You've got all the, all the answers there. But you know, yes. we're talking about notified bodies, and I think we would be remiss if we didn't wrap up uh, with a discussion. Um, and let's tie in the MDCG with that because they had uh, I alluded to the fact that they had rolled out um, 19 recommendations, if you will, mm -hmm. um, to try to uh, improve notified body capacity and and, and make the process um, more efficient. Um, and mm -hmm. I think a lot of people are looking for that. Again, going back to your point, it's not the number of notified bodies, but it's it's the resources and their and and their efficiency. And are you optimistic? Because that seems to be one of the real chief bottlenecks that companies are concerned about. Are you mm -hmm. optimistic that by adopting some or um, you know most or, of those uh, recommendations, um, that we can really uh, avoid? that kind of bottleneck with uh, notified bodies moving ahead? Mm -hmm. Well, I think uh, uh, these, these these were measures that were all put forward, uh, basically the famous 19 measures that were put forward in the uh, MDCG 2022-14 uh, uh, position uh, paper. Um, and I've, I've also written a detailed article on my blog uh, about uh, that. Tell people uh, how they can access your blog. Oh, it's very easy. It's a medicaldeviceslegal.com and it's free. So uh, no paid content, no paywalls. Um, and there's 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 a detailed article on it on what I think about uh, uh, about this position paper. There are quite a lot of good measures in it also because these are basically things that the MDCG did not make up themselves, but which were uh, basically telegraphed to them by stakeholders. Um, and there are also some measures in there of which I think like, okay, this is kind of silly. Like, for example, oh, yeah, that's the 19th measure. Like, yeah, the medicines agencies uh, should uh, should maybe uh, do their best to process uh, uh, reapplications uh, for uh, uh, drug device, combina device drug combinations quicker. Yeah. Hello, MDCG uh, uh, people. These are part of your own member state organization. You can just tell them to take this stuff seriously. So these are things of which I think like, yeah, sorry. I mean, what are you saying? But on the other, that there were also lots of good measures. Like, for example, um, uh, combining work on uh, um, where a manufacturer has a legacy device for which they have also uh, made an application in the MDR then the notified body needs to do both surveillance audits, but also audits for uh, for the, uh, uh, but also a look at the technical documentation and the quality system for the MDR. But this is, this is work you can combine. 
So this is, for example, one of the measures that they put in the uh, uh, in the uh, uh, in this uh, uh, position paper. Also, uh, the um, uh, also the measure that uh, remote audits uh, uh, are possible, things like that. So there are quite some good measures in it. But uh, and if if this all gets uh, deployed, then of course, yeah, it will definitely contribute. But how much? That's hard to predict. I don't know if there's a how much answer in my magic eight ball. Let's shake it. <laughs> what does it the magic say? eight ball say? It says answer unclear. Ask later. Well, that's exactly <laughs> what we should do because we will only know afterwards, right? Whether there was sufficient uh, capacity well, you know, and whether it's hindsight. Yeah, that's the best way to look at things. I think that's the perfect note to end on. And I want to thank you, Eric, so much for taking the time to go into this detail on what is a complex subject. And I think the Magic 8-Ball is right. What we'll have to do is have you back on this podcast in the future to talk about how things evolve in the whole process. So thank you again so much for joining us. I encourage everybody to go to uh, Eric's blog and check that out. And again, we'll look forward to having you join us again to follow this continuing saga. Thank you. Perfect. Thanks very much. We hope you enjoyed that episode. Your support is valuable and makes us better. Please remember to leave a review and rate Market Pathways on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to listen. 